We are in Psalm 47. The title of the message today is Our God Reigns, and let's pray and we'll dive into this. Father, we love you, and Lord, we are thankful that you are sovereign, that God, you are on the throne. And as we live in this broken world today, God, I pray that as we look at your word, that our hearts would be encouraged, that we would be reminded of your power, of your glory, and of your plan. And so we give you this time now in Jesus' name, amen. There in your Bible under Psalm 47, it might read, Sons of Korah, for the authorship, but most scholars believe that Psalm 47 was actually written by King Hezekiah, along with Psalm 46, and they believe that the king wrote those psalms after the Lord brought this miraculous victory to Israel over the forces of the Assyrians. You see, Assyria was the superpower at that time in the world, led by King Sennacherib, and they boasted of their power and their might, and they dared to defy any god or any people who would seek to come against them. And so the Assyrians had come against Israel and they were literally camped outside the city of Jerusalem and they gave this ultimatum to King Hezekiah and the people of Israel. And the ultimatum was this, surrender or be destroyed. That was the situation that King Hezekiah found himself in. So what was he going to do? Well, you can read about this story in 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19, but I want to give you kind of the Reader's Digest version of what happened, because this is what King Hezekiah did. He prayed. He literally took the message that was given to him from King Sennacherib and he laid it out. He opened up the scroll, laid it out before the Lord, and he prayed. And as he prayed, God met him and God spoke to him and God told him to stand strong and to not be afraid and to trust in the Lord. And God ended up giving them an incredible Victory, And I love the way that the Bible commentator John Phillips describes this whole scene and his commentary on the Psalms. I want to read it to you. It's rather lengthy, so just listen close. He writes this. The massive armies of Assyria had deployed themselves around Jerusalem. The watchers on the city walls could see nothing but a vast sea of troops and tents as far as the eye could reach. The imperial standards of the Assyrian emperor flew in the breeze as the battering rams, slings, and scaling ladders, and all the machinery of war were assembled before the gates. Fierce-faced, bearded men were burnishing their shields and sharpening their swords for the onslaught, for the success that they were sure would be theirs. The time for talking and parlaying and propaganda was over. Hezekiah had refused to listen. 
So tomorrow the assault would begin. The battering rams would pound away at the gates of Jerusalem. The engines of war would hurl great boulders into the city. The archers would blacken the sky with their arrows. And the ground troops would begin to undermine the walls. They, then they would ransack the city, ravish the women, massacre the men, and seize the spoil. What a powerful and vivid description of what awaited the people of Israel. And I want you to imagine that night, the night before this battle, this this attack, this onslaught was to begin. No doubt the, the watchers on the wall were up all night watching, being prepared, looking for a surprise attack. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah spent the night praying and watching. But as the dawn broke and the sun began to flood over the Judean hills with light, they looked out over the Assyrian camp and it was strange. There was no sound. It was eerily silent. No movement, no called arms, no trumpet blasts whatsoever. And as the sun rose even further, they began to see the vultures circling around, sensing the dead. What happened? Well, the Lord deployed one angel. Everybody say, one angel. God deployed one angel, and that one angel killed 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers. Their entire army lay dead. Never again would the Assyrian army tramp across the Judean hills. And upon the news of that massive display of God's power and this miraculous victory, King Hezekiah wrote this psalm that we're looking at today. Notice verse 1. Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is awesome. And he is a great, great king over all the earth. And he will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. He will choose our inheritance for us. The excellence of Jacob whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with understanding. God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together, the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. And he is greatly exalted. Let me have your attention. Psalm 47 is a psalm of victory. It's a psalm that celebrates God's sovereignty over the nations. But it's also regarded as a messianic psalm. In other words, it's a psalm that also prophesies of a greater day to come. A day when King Jesus will exercise his power and his might over the nations of the world in a final battle that takes place in a valley there in Israel, the Valley of Megiddo. It's a psalm, in other words, that points to the battle of Armageddon. And we'll look at why in just a few minutes. 
But today I want to divide this psalm into two sections. In section 1, verses 1 through 4, we see Hezekiah rejoicing over God's power. And then in the second section, verses 5 through 9, we see him rejoicing over God's position. And so we're going to break it up in that way today. First of all, he's rejoicing over God's power. Notice verse 1 again. Oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. In ancient days, kings were saluted at their ascension with the clapping of hands and with shouts. And you would think after such a great and marvelous victory that it wouldn't be necessary for King Hezekiah to urge the people of Israel to clap their hands and to shout to the Lord in triumph. But truth be told, we as human beings can be very ungrateful people. Remember that scene in Luke chapter 17? Ten lepers come to Jesus. Ten men who were plagued with the disease of leprosy. And Jesus heals all of them. But we're told there in Luke 17 that only one of those lepers, and that, that man being a Samaritan, only one of them came back to thank the Lord for what he had done. And Jesus took notice of that. And he asked the question, were there not 10 who were cleansed? Where are the other nine? And I think Jesus could probably say the same thing about us at times. He works in our lives. He does miracles. He provides for us. He moves in in various ways. And we fail to give him praise. Why is that? Well, I want you to see something as it relates to this idea of the clapping of hands. In fact, everybody right now, let's just clap your hands for a moment, all right? Okay. Here's what's interesting about the clapping of hands. In order to really, truly clap your hands, your hands need to be empty. They need to be empty. And I wonder, perhaps our reluctance at times to give ourselves to praise and worship and to be a people of gratitude is because our hands aren't empty. Our hands are too full. Carrying our own burdens, carrying the weight of all the different things going on in our lives. When God is telling us constantly, cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. But we constantly have our hands full, carrying the burdens, carrying the weight, carrying the responsibility or carrying the possessions that so grab a hold of our hearts. And we need to empty our hands to be a people of worship and gratitude. I think it would be really good for many of us if we started to take ourselves a lot less seriously than we do. To empty our hands. Now notice in verse 2. Hezekiah continues, for the Lord most high is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. Notice his description. Hezekiah focused, first of all, on the name, the Lord. It's Jehovah in the Hebrew. And this is the name that God uh, spoke in his covenant making. It's a, it's a name that speaks that of the fact that he is a covenant keeping God. In other words, he's a God who keeps his promises. 
But then Hezekiah also uses the phrase, the Most High. In the Hebrew, it's the word Elion, and it's the name by which God revealed himself to Abraham after he brought victory over the kings of the east during the time of Melchizedek. And this phrase, the Most High, Elion, means that God is the possessor of heaven and earth. It's a millennial title of God. It's a name that speaks of his sovereign rule. That he is the God who is above all gods and a God above all leaders. That it's a name that speaks of his honor and his majesty, his power and his might. So Hezekiah declares that he is the Lord Jehovah, the most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. And then he says is he's awesome. Everybody say awesome. The word awesome is actually translated in some Bible translations as terrible. And that might sound, you know, like a, an odd thing to say about God. But the idea there is, is and, and why our Bible says awesome is kind of a good translation, because it means awe-inspiring, or maybe even fear-inspiring. And think about it. The camp of the Assyrians, laden with corpses of dead soldiers, would have been awe-inspiring and maybe even fear-inspiring to anybody who would come upon that scene. The greatest nation in the world at that time suddenly was done. It was no more. And when you study the history of the empires of the world, it's interesting. This is what you find, that the, the empires of the world, they come and they go. Think about Egypt, mighty nation during the time of Moses. It was the superpower of its day. But in one faithful, fateful moment, as the children of Israel were fleeing out of Egypt and God opens up the Red Sea and the children of Israel, it says, they pass through on dry ground and here comes the army of pharaohs barreling behind them and God closes the water up upon them and they were destroyed. Egypt still exists today as a nation, but it's no power. It's weak. Think about Babylon. Babylon was mighty during the time of King Nebuchadnezzar. Today, Babylon is divided. Babylon today is the nation of Iraq. It's not powerful at all. Think about Greece and Rome. Once wonders of mankind have fallen. Think about the Soviet Union today. It exists no more. Now, Putin, he's trying to put it back together but it's not the power that it once was. And even the United States, we are still a superpower. But, we, but if we're honest, we are on the decline as well. Because what Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34, we're seeing come true right before our very eyes. It says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. My point is this. Nations and superpowers come and go, but the kingdom of God stands. The kingdom of God continues to advance. The gospel of Jesus Christ continues to move and work throughout the nations of the world. I mean, think about this. Take communist China. 
where it is illegal to be a Christian, where churches meet underground. Did you know that the largest mass of Christians in any nation in all of the world exist in communist China? Isn't that amazing? You can't believe in Jesus. You can't preach the gospel here. And God goes, we'll see about that, you know. You know where the, the nation right now, where the, the fastest growing, uh, the church is growing the fastest? It's in, it's in Iran today. Another nation where they say that it's illegal to believe in Jesus. Superpowers come and go, but the kingdom of God stands forever. Evil can spread, but God is still on the throne and his plan is unfolding and everything is moving in the direction of what Hezekiah writes here in verse three. Notice he says, he will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. Now at this point, Hezekiah is looking into the future. He will subdue. He's speaking future tense. He's speaking prophetically. And many scholars believe that Hezekiah is speaking prophetically here, looking at that time in future history that the Bible speaks of when the nations of the world are going to come together, led by the one who's called the Antichrist, and they're going to come into this valley in, Jer- in Israel, the valley of Megiddo, Armageddon. It's where we get the name Armageddon from. And they're going to be coming into this valley, marching across this valley toward Israel. And from you know, one who would look at that scene, it would look like the fate of Israel's doom is sealed. But the Bible tells us in that moment, Jesus is going to intervene. Jesus comes from heaven after his second coming and and with the forces of heaven, he's going to come against this army and they are going to be absolutely destroyed. In fact, the Bible says, and it's an eerie thing to think about when you are in Israel looking at this valley, it says that the blood from the slaughter is going to rise up to the horse's bridle. Massive army, massive though, defeat. I love to teach when we go to Israel that particular study and to look at that scene. And I'll never forget one of the times when we were there and our guide, his name was Yoshi, and he, he wasn't a believer. Most guides in Israel aren't, aren't believers. He was, you know, he's a Jewish guy. And, and the Jewish people don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They're still looking for the Messiah. And they believe, much like the you know, people in the New Testament did, that their Messiah is going to come and he's going to overthrow you know, whatever power is in place and he's going to set up his kingdom. And so when I was teaching on the Battle of Armageddon there, afterwards, Yoshi came up to me like, that was awesome. Because that's what they're thinking. That's what they're looking for. That's what, you know, they're thinking, our Messiah is going to come and he's going to take out the enemy. Hezekiah is getting a picture, I think, here of that battle. He says in verse four, he will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of, of Jacob, whom he loves. And the word excellent there in verse four is better translated pride. Because the nation of Israel was Jehovah's pride and joy. They were the object of his love. In fact, God referred to the nation of Israel as the apple of his eye. They were precious to him. And God had pledged his allegiance to the nation of Israel and to the people of Israel, not because they were great and mighty, 
The Bible tells us, he says, I, I didn't choose you because you were great and mighty, but, but I, I, told, I, I chose you because you were underdogs, because you were weak, because you were needy. And God made a covenant with Abraham, and then later he reiterated that covenant with, with uh, David, that he would forever bless Israel, and that he would make Israel a blessing to the entire world. And we've seen how God has done that. In Israel being raised up as an economic power, as, as an agricultural power, blessing the entire world through their agriculture. Right now we're seeing how Israel is blessing Europe with their supply of oil. But the greatest blessing to the world that would come through Israel would be the salvation that God would offer to fallen humanity that would come through the Jewish man, Jesus, born there in Israel. That through Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, God would make a way for fallen man and sinful human beings to be brought back into a right relationship with him. To have their sins forgiven and their guilt removed. That they could come into this place of having a relationship with God. The blessing that would come through Israel. So when Hezekiah says he will subdue the people under us and the nations under our feet, Hezekiah is pointing to that battle and that moment there in that, that's coming yet, even though he didn't fully understand how that prophecy would unfold. So in verses 1 through 4, he's rejoicing in God's power, but then he begins to move to rejoicing in God's position in verses 5 through 9. Notice he says, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. He's rejoicing in God's position that he has risen. And again, commentators kind of disagree over the meaning of this verse. Some believe that Hezekiah was pointing back to that time when David brought the Ark of the Covenant that represented the presence of God and it had been in captivity with the Philistines and David brought it back into Jerusalem with great celebration. And some believe that Hezekiah is pointing back to that, but personally, I don't think that fits the context here of what Hezekiah is seeing. So others believe that Hezekiah is continuing to speak prophetically and that this is a reference to Christ's ascension after his earthly ministry. After his death on the cross and after his resurrection from the dead, after Calvary was over and the sufferings of Christ gave place for the glory that would follow as Jesus meets with his disciples there on the Mount of Olives after 40 days after his resurrection. And then the Bible says that he ascended. He was taken up right before them into heaven. And as he ascended there into heaven, he took his rightful place there on the throne at the right hand of God. And the phrase there in our text, gone up, literally means exalted. In fact, it's the exact same word that's used for exalted at the end of this psalm. Jesus ascending into heaven. And remember the angels? Remember what they said? Disciples are looking up like, you know, like, this is amazing. What just happened? And the angels come and appear. And he says, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will also come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. 
And so many Bible scholars believe, and I agree, that Hezekiah here, he's looking, he's seeing into the future of the ascension, Jesus going up into heaven, ascending to that place of the right hand of the Father. And the next thing he sees is he's reigning. Look at verse 6 and 7. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. You know, the people of Judah had faced a terrifying enemy. The Assyrians were brutal. They were ruthless in the way that they would come against other nations. And they had enjoyed this season of great dominance, but they were no match for the Lord. But Jesus conquered an even greater foe than the Assyrians, than Rome, than Russia, than any superpower that has ever existed on the earth. You see, Jesus at the cross conquered sin and death. He defeated the devil. He defeated the one who had held mankind in bondage for over 3,000 years. And remember what Jesus cried out from the cross? He declared, it is what? Finished. It's done. The work of salvation is accomplished. He was declaring, it's over. The battle has been won. And they put him in the tomb. And he was there for three days. But just to put the exclamation point on his victory, he rose again from the dead. And the Bible says that death was defeated. Yeah, you can clap to that. And then 40 days later, he ascends up into heaven. And imagine the reception he must have received there in glory. With wonder and love and enthusiasm, the the angelic host welcomed him home. But they must have also looked on with a bit of bewilderment at his human form. Because they could still see the mark of the spear that pierced his side. And the holes in his hands and feet from the cross. The the scars from the crown of thorns that was pressed upon his head. You see, the Bible seems to indicate that Jesus still bears those scars and will until his second coming. In fact, remember in the book of Revelation... Remember when John, he's he's taken up into heaven, and in chapter 5, he sees an angel holding a scroll, and this scroll represents the title deed to planet Earth, the title deed that was, was forfeited when Adam sinned there in the garden. And that's why the Bible refers to Satan as the god of this world and the prince of the power of the air. And the angel says, who is worthy? in heaven or on earth to open this scroll and loose their loose the seals and open the scroll and other in other words who is worthy to lay claim to planet earth this title deed and the bible says that no one was found worthy in both heaven or in earth and it says that john began to weep because he's thinking the world is going to forever be in the hands of of the devil but it was there that The angel says, John, don't weep, because the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has been found worthy to loose the seals and open the scroll. And it says that John turned, expecting to see a ferocious lion. But what did he see? Jesus as a lamb, as though he had been slain, still bearing the marks of the crucifixion. 
At the cross and at his resurrection, Jesus redeemed this world back to himself. And one day, he's going to come again and lay claim to what is rightfully his. And he's going to reign. He's reigning now and he's going to lay claim to what is rightfully his, what he redeemed there at Calvary. The next thing he sees about his position is that he is righteous. Look at verse 8. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Now the Old Testament priests wore a miter which bore the golden title, holiness unto the Lord. Now if you come from a Roman Catholic background, you know that the Pope today is referred to in that way as your holiness. Do you know that's blasphemous? Because God declared that no man except his son would have that title of your holiness. Jesus is the only holy one. In Revelation chapter 19, there's a scene in heaven at the end of the seven-year tribulation time where it says, after these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God for true and righteous are his judgments. Do you know that's the perspective of heaven? When, when the, for the perspective of heaven, as they see everything, there's no time in heaven. They see everything from the now. The perspective of those in heaven is true and righteous are God's judgments. We often look at things going on and, 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 and we kind of scratch our heads. We're like, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand why you allowed that. I don't understand why, why, why this took place. We, we can find ourselves at times becoming disappointed with God. But the view in heaven, and this will be our view one day, true and righteous are your ways, O oh Lord. It's perfect. Lord, everything that you do, it is right. It is good. It makes sense. When we get to heaven, we're going to be like, okay, now I get it. Lord, you are perfect in your holiness. Right now, we live in this world that is tainted by sin, by the curse of sin. We live in a world where wickedness and iniquity abound, that there seems to be no end to the depths that humanity is willing to to go in order to achieve their sinful and deviant lust. Sin and wickedness will reign upon this earth until Jesus returns. But when he returns, when he comes back, he will rule in complete righteousness. Because that's his nature. He is altogether holy. And everything he does is right. And the Bible says that there is coming a day, Paul wrote this in Philippians chapter 2, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, you can do that today. You can bow today. You can acknowledge the kingship of Jesus today, that he is reigning, that he is righteous, that he's the only one that can make someone righteous. You can bow today, or you can say, ah, I'll wait. I'll wait till later. I'll wait till that time. But listen, if you wait till that time, it'll be too late. It'll be too late. 
He's reigning. And notice also he's returning. Look at verse 9. The princes of the people have gathered together, the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Now, during the reign of King Solomon, Solomon made these 12 golden shields and hung them in the temple. These 12 shields represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Hezekiah, though, is writing 200 years after Solomon's reign. And at this point, the kingdom of Israel has been divided. It's been split in two. There are 10 nations in the north referred to as Israel, and then two nations down in the south referred to as Judah. Hezekiah is reigning in in, in the area of Judah. But Hezekiah is seeing once again into the future at a time when Israel is going to be brought together again. God reigning, Jesus reigning and ruling over his people. Jesus reigning and ruling over the earth. So this is a psalm of victory, a psalm that proclaims the great power and victory of our God over the superpower of that day, Assyria but also points to the power and majesty and sovereignty of God over the powers of the world in our day, that he is on the throne. And it points to that time when he is going to point or he is going to exercise his power and authority over the nations of the world coming against Israel. So here's the question I leave you with today. What do we do with this story? What do we do with this psalm? I think there are three reactions that we need to have. The first is that this psalm is meant to remind us that God is sovereign. That no matter who it looks like is winning or who's in charge in our day and age, as we see you know, crazy things happening in governments and, and in politics, we need, this psalm reminds us that God is still on the throne. And it's only going to be a matter of time until he flexes his muscles. The second thing that this psalm is meant to do is to inspire us to hope. To inspire us to the reality that Jesus wins. That this is where everything is headed. That Jesus is going to return in glory and power and majesty. And we who are his followers, the Bible says, are going to return with him as he sets up his kingdom here on planet earth. That we are going to rule and reign with Jesus. And so that should inspire us with a sense of hope that we know, hey, things might be getting bad, but we know Jesus is going to win. But the third thing that this psalm, I think, does and needs to do, is it's meant to motivate us that we have good news to share. You see, as I was looking at this psalm, I was reminded of another story that happens there in 2 Kings. This time it's chapter 6 and 7. And this time it's the kingdom of Syria coming against the northern part of Israel, the nation of Israel, and they are led by King Ben-Hadad. And they come, the armies of Syria come, and they surround the city of Samaria. And it happens to be during a time of famine. 
Food is scarce. And because the army of Syria is surrounding the city of Samaria, no food can get into the city. And the Syrians, basically, their plan is, we're going to just wait them out and they'll starve to death. Well, there were these four lepers. And because they were lepers, leprosy in that day was a very contagious disease. Well, they didn't let them into the city walls of Samaria. So they were on the outside. And these four lepers came up with a plan. They said, you know, we're going to starve to death. Why don't we just go down to the Syrians and just see what might happen? They might kill us, true, but they might give us some food. And we're going to die, you know, either way. So either be quick or slow, but let's just go down and let's just see what might happen. And so these four lepers go down to the camp of Syria and they find that the camp is completely deserted. You can read about this in 2 Kings 6 and 7. But they come down, the camp is completely deserted, but it looks like the army of the Syrians have got up and left in haste because all their tents are up and in their tents, there's a spread of food like Thanksgiving day. I mean, there's tables set up and there's food everywhere. And, and, and the, narr- the writer of the narrative there in second Kings tells us what happens. It says, for the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses and the noise of a great army. And the Syrians said to one another, Israel has hired the Egyptians and the Hittites and their armies to come against us. And they freaked out and they fled. So these four lepers come in and they open up a tent door and there's all this food and their eyes just pop out of their heads because they're starving. They haven't eaten in days. And so they just start feasting. They're gorging themselves. It's like, man, pass me another drumstick. And they're just going for it. And then one of them comes to his senses. And one of them says, man, this is not right. Today is a day of good news. And we need to share this with everybody. It's not right that we hold this to ourselves. We need to go let the king and everyone in the city know there's an abundance of food available. And that's exactly what they did. And the application for us, church, is this. It's not enough for us to know how the story ends. It's not enough for us to know that we have this hope. The truth that we are talking about today needs to motivate us in the same way that it did these lepers. That we can't keep this to ourselves. We've got to get the good news out. We need to let people know the gospel that Jesus left heaven and came to this earth to make a way for sinful people to be brought back into a right relationship with God. That Jesus proved who he was, that he was God in human flesh when he died on the cross and he rose again from the dead and he offers this gift of salvation to everyone who would hear it and receive it. Guys, it's wrong for us to keep this to ourselves. We need to get it out. And we need to live our lives with such a joy that other people around us would look at us and ask us, why are you so happy? In the midst of a world that is crumbling, but there's despair all around us, and the message of, of doom is just put out you know, every single day, we need to be a group of people that are living with a sense of hope. As Paul would say, that people would 
that we would have a reason for people to go, why are you so hopeful? And we can tell them, it's because of Jesus. It's because we know how this ends. We know who's on the throne. God has a plan and he's working. And the biggest part of his plan is he wants you to know him. The world that we're living in today is crazy, but we have this hope in Jesus that needs to be shared. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way that you opened up the eyes of King Hezekiah to not just see the victory that you brought in his day, but the victory that you will bring in our day. The victory that is yet to come. When Jesus comes to rule and to reign and sets up his kingdom. And Lord, we know your, the, your word tells us that the reason why you're still waiting is that you desire for people that don't know you, that haven't embraced you, that haven't declared Jesus, I want you to be my king. That they would come to know you. And I just want to encourage you today, if you're in that place, watching online or here in this room, and and Jesus isn't your king, and you want to be ready, you want to be on the right side when Jesus comes, I encourage you today, right now, just open up your heart to him. Say, Jesus, I want you to be my king. Forgive me. Cleanse me. I give my heart to you. And as you do that, Jesus is going to meet you right now in this moment. And Lord, I pray for the rest of us that our lives would be, that we would live our lives with such a sense of hope and joy and knowing who you are and what you've done and what you are yet to do. That you are the God who keeps his promises. Help us, Lord, to rest in that today. In Jesus' name. Amen.